Can I do it this time as you? Sure. <laughs> Hold on. Hello, everybody. I'm Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. Cows. I'm Andrea Gazetta. <laughs> Wait. My page? I, I guess, unless you want to be Hello. somebody else. <laughs> You have to say your name. And I'm Paige. Hey, everybody. Oh, sorry. I have no other information. I wanted Armando's job, but I didn't want the responsibilities. <laughs> no, run. <laughs> I don't even know what we do after this. <laughs> Story of my life. We've got another great episode for you this week. It's my week. I'm Paige. Uh, we're, I'm covering... The Branch Davidians. Uh, today I go into some of how, uh, you know, David Koresh became who David Koresh is. Yeah. It's a fun time. Wow, Paige, you did such a great job with this episode. I'm really proud of you and all the research you did. Thanks, Armando. I know I'm married, but you're looking kind of swell. Anyway. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We've got... We've got... Before... Before we get into it, we've got some news and reviews. This first news is that we've got a Patreon now. Ooh. Armando, why don't you tell them about the Patreon? Uh, for just five bucks a month, you can get me and my silly ideas and things I think are news and also jokes that didn't fit into the regular podcast. <laughs> That's a pretty good representation. And there's also really cool, sweet prizes that I designed with my sweet, awesome girlfriend, Andrea. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you can find out more about that on patreon.com slash cult podcast. Uh, and then we have another five-star review here. <laughs> this one comes to us from Says More Often, and they say, yes, so good. I've been listening since the very beginning, and I love them more each week. Y'all are doing a very, very good job. Oh, I'm a good boy. Thank you. Um, Wait, I'm what? I'm a good page. Okay. I'm a good page. Thanks for doing such a great podcast and making such an awesome community. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. And I think without any further ado... By the way, this character switching doesn't have anything to do with the actual episode Zero. itself. We're just Nothing. trapped inside and very bored. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this episode is very fun, and I'm very excited for you to hear it. And welcome to the show. Hello. 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 <laughs> I had to that be off key. Too. I was on We sound like tone-deaf coyotes. <laughs> You played me so accurately, Paige, and I really appreciate that gets, about you. It just keeps getting better from here. Just keep going. We promise it's good. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm. Organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership. Organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers. Organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships. And organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits, and as always, 
These are our opinions. Thank you for tuning into Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Torres. And with us we have Andrea Cassetta. Yay! And it's my week again. Woohoo! And today we're talking about David Koresh's childhood. Yeah. Question mark? Yeah, there's a big old question mark on that one. I'm just imagining <laughs> a baby with the giant glasses and shaggy hair. Oh, God. Like out of the womb? Yeah. I hear that that was part of his umbilical cord was the glasses. Is that right? <laughs> Can Gross. you imagine how that would feel coming out? Yikes. Oh, God. <laughs> I get my nutrients through the glasses. <laughs> it's, mm. it's crowning, and I'm trying not to break the glass. Um, <laughs> this, this got dark pretty quick. Um, guys, are you ready for our sources today? Because there are some hefty disclaimers with multiple sources. It's going to take us a bit, but it will be very important later in the episode. Are we ready? Yeah. Yeah. All right. My first source and probably my favorite of the group of sources that we have today is a documentary that's currently free on Amazon. So if you watched the Netflix fictionalized story, do yourself a favor and maybe watch the free version of Waco, Mad Men, or Messiah. You can also get it on YouTube if you don't want to support Amazon. Totally kosher. Um, That is a documentary from 2018. It actually includes many, many interviews with survivors, but also recorded interviews with David Koresh from the FBI archives. Um, I really, really, really like it because they talked to not only survivors who disliked Koresh and feel kind of vindicated in being on the other side, um, but they also talked to people that are still loyal to him which is something that we kind of have to grapple with when we talk about this story. As we've kind of mentioned with cults previously in a few different episodes, there's not an easy way to convince someone to leave a cult. People leave cults when they're ready to leave cults. That's kind of the way it is. It's the same with abusive relationships. People can't always see a way out until they're ready to leave. And it's a very difficult and personal journey for people who are in these types of organizations. And the difficulty with Waco, or the Branch Davidians, is that for a lot of people, that chance to choose to leave on their own was taken from them. The cult itself ended before they were ready to leave. And what that means is we have a lot of people who were in this group and have terrible things to say about it and have given us honest testimony about the abuses that happened inside and the way that they and their families were hurt both by David Koresh and by the FBI. But then we also have people who are still loyal to David Koresh who corroborate the stories of the abuses, which is very important to note, that a lot of these people say the same things happened. They have stories that match, but they come from different points of view, where you have one side saying, yes, this horrible thing happened, and then another side saying, oh, that happened, but he was God, so it makes sense. 
And it's difficult to kind of parse exactly what is true and what has been manipulated, if that makes sense. This is one of the biggest problems with the one on Netflix right now. And we'll get to that a little bit more in just a second. But it's essentially an account from someone who wasn't ready to leave. And we'll cover that a little bit more in literally two sources down. Um, we have the list of people who claim to be Jesus. One of my favorites. Yes. Yeah. I'm waiting for this. <laughs> we have a book called The Devil's Party, A History of Charlatan Messiahs by Colin Wilson. This is a questionable source. It's entertaining as hell, but he has no citations. <laughs> of course, dude. It's the best party. The Devil's Party. You've got the devil's lettuce, which is marijuana. Um, you've got the devil's marijuana, which is lettuce. <laughs> but like a good romaine, you know what I mean? These salads are so confusing. <laughs> this, See, this is what you need to do, Armando, is make a cookbook of weed foods called the devil's salad. <laughs> the smoked salmon is smoked both before and after smoking. Yeah, dude. Do you ever hot box of salmon? <laughs> nice. I got him so high, he swore he could feel the bass in the music. <laughs> so so Colin Wilson, the guy who wrote this book, um, comes from a true crime perspective, not necessarily a religious perspective or even a historical perspective. And he claims to have talked to some of the people close to David Koresh, but he doesn't cite his sources. So we can mostly only take what he says as hearsay, and we really only include it when there are other accounts that we can verify to back it up. Um, and finally, we have Waco, a survivor story by David Thibodeau and Leon Whiteson. This is the book that the, the fictionalized account starring that guy from Friday Night Lights, uh, that's... <laughs> This final source, uh, Waco, a survivor story, is what that fictionalized account is based on. And there's a serious fucking problem with that. Because David Thibodeau is loyal. He, he is still a Branch Davidian. He still thinks David Koresh was a prophet. And in reading the book, it is frustrating because he just records and lists everything that he ever heard David Koresh say as fact and what we have in the accounts from other people and even just documentation from the time are things that contradict what David Koresh would say to him and there are many instances in which we have some evidence of David Koresh kind of changing his story based on who he's telling it to to make them empathize with him in one way or another um, David Thibodeau specifically met David Koresh because he, well, Thibodeau went to Los Angeles to become a drummer and it wasn't really working out. It's a hard life in Hollywood. Yeah. And he, yeah, yeah. Someone say a hard knock life. Familiar is yeah. <laughs> That's my audition tape for be becoming a drummer, by the way. You did so good. He met David Koresh at the Guitar Center on Sunset. Oh, yes. no shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After insisting to his bandmates that they needed to stop so he could get new drumsticks on the way to rehearsal. So he was like, I got to pull over. I got to get new drumsticks. And then had to try them out. Like he didn't just buy the same ones he always buys. It's a very strange story. Um, and 
David Koresh at the time, and this is around 1988, was looking for a drummer for his band. We'll cover that a little bit more extensively as we get to the section with his band. Um, but he and his associate that was where, there with him at the time basically love-bombed David Thibodeau and his friends. They bought them beers. They bought them food. They offered to fly them out to Texas. They kind of promised him this great you know, thing where he'd be playing with this band. They didn't require him to believe, which was a huge thing. Um, they were just like, come out, see how you like it. And then, of course, you never leave. Um, and I think they specifically went to Los Angeles looking for musicians because they knew they would find people who were talented but having a rough go of it because Los Angeles is full of them. And the the other thing about Los Angeles, too, is there's this mythology here that, like, it can happen anytime. You can just be discovered, man. And so, like, I'm sure if you are someone who feels underappreciated and you go to Guitar Center and someone's blowing smoke up, you know, wherever – you're just like, oh my God, someone gets me. Someone appreciates my talent because I am also susceptible to this. And that's how I know that if <laughs> yeah. you came up to me in Guitar Center, you're like, your art's so good. I'd be like, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I just want to be the guy who wrote the Boondock Saints of drumming. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> a real dick to listen to otherwise. But like, I had that one good project. <laughs> Something else to note about David Thibodeau is he doesn't arrive at Mount Carmel until 1988-89. And so he talks about things that were happening, but he's talking about them from David Koresh's perspective because he doesn't really know what happened before he got there. So it is a, a biased and not necessarily accurate narrative. There are a few points where he gets literal timelines wrong and we'll we'll cover that kind of as we go um but the one thing that he does have are some of the stories that David Koresh was telling people about his life and childhood we can't verify a lot of them but they give us some insight into at least what he thought people wanted to hear and I'll cite what which stories are from David Koresh uh, and which ones we have actual factual basis for so, are you guys ready? I'm ready. Yeah. These are always, whenever you cover, like, a big one, like when we did with uh, the Moonies, that's always my favorite part is just reading their account versus the account of what actually happened. And it's almost like watching a video of someone fall down and them trying to be like, oh, I was doing, like, a flip, like a cool flip. You just saw it wrong. <laughs> that's what it yeah. always reminds me of. It's just someone trying to cover up for their past mistakes. So I am so excited to see what happens here. Yeah. So without further ado, David Koresh was born Vernon Wayne Howell, August 17th, 1959 in Tyler, Texas. Now you got me once before. This ain't another one of these Kimmy Schmitz, is it? No, it is not, and I have been to Tyler, Texas, um, because Jake, my husband, grew up in the suburbs of Tyler, Texas. Oh, my God. I didn't realize this was so close. It, is, it, it gets closer. Um, now, uh, Vernon's mother, Bonnie, was 14 years old when she had Vernon. Ooh. According to most of the family, because uh, Waco, Messiah, or Mad Men, the documentary, actually interviews David Koresh's 
uh, family members. I'll kind of identify them as we go because they're a little complicated. Um, and they have like photos and records and like actual stories about what happened. And then we can kind of fill in the blanks. Um, but according to the family members, before Vernon was born, his father met another teenage girl and abandoned his mother, Bonnie Sue. Gross. Um, now, according to David Koresh via David Thibodeau, um, he did have a little bit of contact after Vernon's birth. Not necessarily enough for um, David Koresh to remember, but allegedly his father, Bobby, nicknamed him Sputnik. But that's mm. really kind of all we have. Okay. Oh, man. I'm The only reason I'm happy they didn't stay together. Actually, there's a lot of good reasons that I'm glad that guy wasn't there. But uh, you have to realize they would have been Bobby and Bonnie. And that would have been terrible. Yeah, it would have been rough. Or it would have been great. And I would have watched it for three seasons on Fox. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Bobby and Bonnie. I feel like it would just get confusing with name tags. Um <laughs> So for part of Vernon's early life, he was actually raised believing that his aunt was his younger sister as he was about three years older than her because his mom was 14 and his grandmother had other younger children So and continued to have children after Vernon, Vernon was born. Weird. So, yes. So his aunt sister uh, is one of the people interviewed in the documentary now, this huh. was only for, like, his first few years, so he does, they do tell him, obviously, the truth once he's old enough to understand. It's not like they, it's not like on, it wasn't like a deathbed confession. Like, he eventually learned that that was his aunt um, when he was about five years old, and reports actually differ on this. There's a few different records. My research would suggest that this happened at five, and then his half-brother was born at seven, so probably five. His mother married an older man named Roy Haldeman, also known as Rocky. His mother was only 19 at the time, and she decided to take Vernon with her. About two years later, Bonnie and Roy had a younger child of their own, and Bonnie's husband, Roy, was pretty rough on Vernon and seemed to show extreme preference to their younger son, his actual biological son, Roger. Essentially, Roy was pissed that he had to help raise someone else's kid. And it didn't help that Vernon was not necessarily a typical kid. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of both Manson, but also Robin Gecht. They have kind of similar-ish early, early childhoods well yeah they're not getting enough attention and the person that they think of as their parent is essentially abandoning them to go live with someone who they don't really respect or sees an authority figure yeah so roy disliked vernon greatly and vernon kind of wanted to go back to the family he'd known with his aunt and his grandmother and they would actually frequently come visit so that he could play with other children his age because his aunts and uncles were his age and he repeatedly asked to move back in with them but his mother and Roy refused and according to Roger his younger half-brother and according to the account from Thibodeau so this is something that we have kind of some matching stories David was violently badly abused 
Um, Thibodeau's account actually tells of him being beaten nearly black and blue, like broken bones level beaten by his parents at his own 13th birthday. Um, His half-brother talks about the fact that his father would throw him out of the house repeatedly from a young age, and we're talking nine or ten. By all accounts, Roy, his stepdad, was a horrific, abusive asshole. His half-brother wasn't even necessarily immune. He also suffered abuse at Roy's hands and would later end up in prison on drug and burglary charges. Um, The one weird constant in a few of these stories that seems to be one happy point of David Koresh's childhood is that he had a dog named Jet Fuel. Aww. Ah. Sputnik and Jet Fuel. Oh, okay, cool. I was gonna say there's a couple other crazy white guys that own dogs named Jet Fuel, and I don't think it's for the same reason. I don't think so either, but I think yeah. it was because he liked space. Yeah. That's now it's because it's conspiracy dogs. What? Right. Now, according to a lot of the people around him, he was a very talented kid with a lot of hobbies, and he would learn things quickly, particularly how to use guns and how to play music. Because remember, this is rural Texas. He lives on a farm. So he got good with a gun, not necessarily in a weird way, in a farm way, um, and he could pick up guitars and play it almost by ear. Did you know that you can actually use a gun to play a piano if you're good enough? If you're good if you're enough. you're good enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's an ancient technique. It goes like this. Play the piano. <laughs> it's an old Texas trick. And then you shoot at their feet. <laughs> but despite being very talented at drugs and guns and even carpentry, pretty much anything he put his hands or his mind to, he struggled a lot in school. He had severe dyslexia. And he had a stress-induced stutter, which meant that he would do badly in school and then subsequently be beat by his stepfather, which would cause him to stutter and continue to do bad in school. It was a horrible cycle. It was at a time when learning challenges were not necessarily as well understood as they are now. And so he was seen as just being dumb there weren't necessarily great resources for him. Unfortunately, the other children that he went to school with were no kinder. Um, At best, they would call him Vernie, but most of them called him, and I apologize profusely, this was not my words, but rather words from multiple accounts, uh, Mr. Retardo. Ooh. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. Now, Mr. Retardo is an interesting one because it's one that we only have from David Koresh telling us stories. So we have it in multiple accounts, but always as told to us by David Koresh. Right. Um, It would not surprise me that children would be that cruel, um, but he also seems to use it as a bit of a, like a, like a sticking point. Like he uses it for wordplay as part of, like sermons and convincing people to do what he wants. And so as you hear him tell stories of his time prior to arriving at Mount Carmel, he will often refer to himself as Mr. Retardo, which is either him kind of making a joke about the abuse that he suffered as a child or him taking some sort of ownership of that name. Um, 
but that is something that shows up quite a few places. He failed the first grade twice. He then also failed the second grade. For third grade, he was actually finally placed in special education classes where he learned the alphabet and actually learned to read, but writing was still difficult. This is actually something that's difficult for him all the way through into adulthood. Um, he was still mercilessly mocked all the way through school. He was raised Seventh-day Adventist. That was his mom's chosen faith. Um, but he would consistently get into arguments with elders at the church as he grew up. And he was repeatedly and consistently thrown out of churches. And this is a pretty heavily debated fact where his family who knew him at the time pretty much all corroborate this. And they're all like, yeah, he was involved in tons of churches and constantly got kicked out because he would try to tell people that he understood the Bible in a way that they didn't. But most of his followers or people that have been loyal to him would tell you that he had no knowledge of the Bible prior to coming to Mount Carmel and that it was divinely inspired. So this is one of those cases where his story has won out with certain people. And the facts of the story and things that people can actually prove and provide photos of and things like that doesn't always make it to the forefront depending on which account you're reading. God, I can't think of anything more embarrassing than being kicked out of a church. Like, that's that's the baseline for being evil, right? No, I, I mean... When God no. is like, hey, you gotta get out of this party, man. Maybe go down to the devil's party where they got, like, weird salads and shit. <laughs> you gotta get out of here. It's more a case of, like, just differing opinions. Hey, you got to get your dumb thoughts and get away from my pretty windows. Get the fuck <laughs> out of here. Uh, in, in many cases, it was because he was claiming to be a prophet. And churches were like, mm, pass. <laughs> yeah, that's tricky. Yes. That's messed up. Um, he was eventually integrated into what we would call mainstream classes, um, but consistently struggled in school due to his dyslexia. So he learned to read and write enough that they felt like he didn't necessarily need special education, but he still struggled very, very badly. They just didn't have resources for someone with his challenges the way that they would today. Um, so he ended up dropping out of Garland High School in his junior year. He was about 16 at the time. And for the next four years or so, he gets work at a few different places around town. Um, and it's not until he's about 18 or 19 that we have another significant story. So in Colin Wilson's account, he says that when David Koresh was 19 years old, he had an illegal sexual relationship with a 15-year-old girl. Now, I will cite the fact that in Texas, the age of consent is 14. That is very important later on, which means that this is not necessarily an illegal relationship. It is troubling, but it's not illegal. Uh, the only problem was she was allegedly a pastor's daughter, which ran him out of one of those church churches. And... According to Colin Wilson's account, he accidentally got her pregnant. Now, 
we don't have any co- corroboration for that story. But what we do have is David Thibodeau's story, which includes a similar but slightly different account of the same time. And I think that they are the same story with slightly different details. So David Thibodeau claims that David Koresh is only 18 at the time and he met Linda Campion when she was 16, at, at which point she got pregnant with his child. In this account, she had an abortion, but Vernon, David, moved in with her and her family. At this point, he'd been kicked out of his parents' house. Allegedly, according to Koresh via Thibodeau, they didn't use condoms for religious reasons, and so she inevitably got pregnant again. And when her father found out, he kicked Vernon out of the house, which is how he ended up living in his car. Vernon claims that he lost contact with her and the child who he believes was carried to term, but we do not have evidence for that. It was around this time that he started spending some time living with his family members, uh, particularly his aunt, who's a little bit younger than him, and grandmother, um, but also living out of his car. And it was a family friend at this time who told him about the community at Mount Carmel. Now, his sister in, I say sister, his aunt in the documentary claims that it was a family friend after Koresh was kicked out of that church. But according to David Koresh, he asked where prophets still existed because he believed that he was one. And his aunt herself pointed him in the direction of Mount Carmel. He drove by it and was drawn there by God, which is tough to do because it was hours away from where he was currently living, and it's not on a main thoroughfare. Again, this is Texas. It is gigantic. To go from Tyler to Waco is easily a three-hour drive, if not more, and Mount Carmel is actually a little further inland. So it's unlikely that he would have been out there without specifically going for that purpose. So I tend to believe his aunt's account that someone told him about the community and he headed out there specifically probably to find a place to live i would guess so there are a lot of mount carmels there are mount carmels kind of all over the world and it's because mount carmel is the name that's mentioned as a holy mountain in egyptian records and it's in the bible it's uh where elijah confronts the false prophets of yeah that's why victor hutef named the community after that yeah so there's i mean there's like a lot of mount carmel's and it's named to reference a place of religious importance already so it makes sense that he was like yeah i'll just go there well also remember this is the early early 80s so it's not like he could just look it up they didn't have a phone book right you know like he had to have kind of heard about it word of mouth um for sure but we think a family friend told him like hey there's a church out there you could probably live there, you know. Um, Is it possible that he, like myself, thought that it was a mountain made out of caramel and was attracted there by the taste? And all the no, bees. So I many bees. Think so. Because um, he heard a lot of buzz around the neighborhood. Ooh, Ooh he heard a lot of buzz. I don't Paige. think so, though. It's it's this horrid. horrid I don't think so because it's this barren landscape of terrible to the point where I'm like, this is a terrible place to have a commune. Why would anyone have a commune here? <laughs> you can't even really and farm. so sticky. Yeah. 
Um, so in 1981, David Koresh gives us this look at what his life was like at that point. He worked and lived in his car, and he claims that one night he got angry at God and cussed him out. Damn. He says that he had never basically followed God his entire life, and now God was reaching out to him. And interestingly enough, he describes encountering God in a way that sounds wildly familiar to an alien abduction, which, like, we don't super have time to get into it, but I've spent, like, way too much fucking time during this quarantine researching aliens, and abduction stories have a lot in common and are specifically tied to the way that our brains process stress or trauma, so there have been a lot of studies in the commonalities of these stories. I'm not saying that David Koresh had an intense emotional experience that mirrors that of many abductions, but maybe... Uh, just saying. According to him, he said that God told him he was important and predestined, which is always what you want to hear when you're on the fringes of society and your life is not going well. Exactly. And then from there, he claims that he went in search of a prophet or prophetess, and that's how he found Mount Carmel. And it's not exactly that simple. If you remember where we left off last week, Victor Hutef had founded the compound at Mount Carmel and the rodents had taken over. But Ben and Lois Rodin's road to leadership wasn't without its bumps in the road. Ben Rodin didn't have a seamless transition. Hutef died without naming a successor and their religious beliefs dictated that they would be led by prophets who were directly chosen by God. But that's the problem with prophets. They all say they're chosen by God. So around the time of Hutef's death, his wife Florence claimed to be the next prophet and announced that she would lead the rod. Ben and Lois <laughs> Roden had other ideas. Ben approached the elders saying that he had had visions that he would lead the group. And this split the group. Ben decided that his group would be called the Branch and thus became the Branch Davidians. Now, they managed to pull a larger faction of the group than Florence did. So they contained, they basically retained control of Mount Carmel. And for about 20 more years, they led this significant faction of the group. And when Ben died, his wife Lois took over. At the time, Lois was in her early 60s. And they also had a son, George, in his early 40s. And George expected that he would take over once Lois died. But lo and behold, there was a long-haired hippie standing in his way. Vernon Wayne Howell, the man we would eventually know as David Koresh, arrived at the compound in the early 80s. Most accounts say it was around 1982. Upon his arrival, he spent a long time talking with Lois about his understanding of the scriptures and the visions he'd been having. One thing led to another, and he and Lois started fucking. Whoa. Like a lot. Yes. She was old enough to be his grandmother. She was literally in her 70s at the time. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. And I would mention that this is not the first time that we're hearing about David Koresh in an age different, a a relationship with age differences. We've seen him have relationships with much younger women. This is a much older woman. I would say that this is indicative of maybe some internal struggles with authority or self-esteem or mother figures or parent figures in general. 
Uh, or he's just like milking her. I like I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what he was drinking, but if you know, if he's dating someone older and he needs a place to stay that's not his car, I kind of get it. You know, this is something yeah. that happened to Robin Gett too when he was younger and he was you know, didn't have a place to live. He started living with an older man. So we kind of see that happening again. Yeah. Andrea loves the story where a guy living in his car goes to live with an older woman. (laughs) (laughs) Armando doesn't milk me anymore. Anyway, sorry. Oh, I didn't need to know that. I didn't. I didn't need to know how you were getting your dairy product. I'm sorry. He's lactose intolerant. That's why. But we can move on. I'm so sorry. It's mostly diet Dr. Pepper. Oh, now, some survivors, uh, after the fact, in their interviews more present day, straight up were saying things like, he tempted her like Eve was tempted by the serpent. I have no idea why she would get into a relationship like that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, for her, win-win. Like, he's a young rocker dude, and she's kind of materialistic as people have attested she liked shoes and fast cars so like yeah of course she wants the go-go boy like I get it um now according to Vernon slash David he started to quote-unquote teach Lois a thing or two about the Bible not in bed but probably both anyway and so (laughs) she according to him was amazed And, like, we get it. You eat box. But, like, that's not that revelatory. (laughs) It's fine. So David thought it was God's will for them to produce a holy child. Gross. I know. Man, that shepherd's rod has a lot of work to do. I mean, yeah. Uh, Can it work miracles? That's the question. I don't know, but I feel like his branch is strong. I don't. Anyway. <laughs> he tells everyone that Lois is going to have a baby and that her faith will bring forth the child. Now, coincidentally, at the same time, her son George is arguing essentially like he's evil. He got my mother pregnant. And he's like, I'm going to get this lady pregnant because I'm got. Like, it's it's a real weird both sides being like she's definitely pregnant that's not the issue the issue is whether or not it's good or bad Um, it's a devil baby yeah now according to multiple accounts and I don't know how to explain this Lois has a miscarriage allegedly which I don't think is possible because I don't think it's possible to get pregnant at in your 70s And this is well outside the normal realm for ages of having a baby or even conceiving or even having any sort of menstrual spotting or anything that would indicate a miscarriage. So I have to imagine that this is her saying that, but not necessarily having a medical explanation to back it up. I actually do have a medical explanation for this. In a report that I was able to find, uh, they were able to prove that David Koresh's sperm actually have little glasses like he does. (laughs) And they can see better so they can get to the egg more efficiently. I just don't think she has any eggs. Yeah, I think she's out of eggs. 
Oh, they brought them with them from home because David Koresh always brings an egg with them from home for sure. He That's looks like gross. that kind of guy. I'm just He's saying, the smelliest boy. Her uterus is like our grocery stores during quarantine. They are out of eggs. Like there's no <laughs> eggs to be found. And there's quite a line outside. <laughs> gross. David Koresh uses this miscarriage to say that Lois doesn't have enough faith, and so she can't be the spiritual leader, which... Damn. Fuck that Henry VIII motherfucker trying to, like, make a woman's worth only about childbearing. That is some bullshit. It's hardcore terrible. Straight up, as soon as you said, like, oh, she had a miscarriage, all I could think of was Mary, Queen of Scots, having a tumor baby. And it's just like, maybe, I don't know, It just made me think of Anne Boleyn and, like, all of that girl's miscarriage. Like brutal and so he basically is like well she didn't have faith to carry this baby that was never going to happen to term clearly that means i'm the spiritual leader because i had faith it would happen so lois loses control of the group there are actually stories and i was only able to corroborate this in one account so this give or take this is what one person remembers but it may not necessarily be accurate According to one of the members of the group, someone tried to push her out of a van. What? I know. And I'm like, I feel like that's something more people would remember and talk about. But I only heard it once. Now, David Koresh actually addressed this later in his FBI recordings where he actually said, and I quote, if I came here 25 years old, I took a 70 year old woman and got her pregnant. You better watch out. I am God. Which brings me to my favorite segment. Who else claimed to be God at this time? Yes. All right. The names I've been waiting for. Who else claimed to be God was filmed in front of a live studio audience. Number one, Wayne Bent. Born in 1941, he is also known as Michael Traviser of the Lord Our Righteousness Church. He claims, I am the embodiment of God. I am divinity and humanity combined. He was convicted in December of 2008 for criminal sexual contact of a minor and two counts of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Oh, (laughs) Oh, no. Terrible. Which brings us to Hogan Fukunaga. He founded the Honohana Senpoyogo, also called the Foot Reading Cult, in Japan in 1987. (laughs) I love this guy. I mean, I don't love him, but I love this guy's story. He's pretty great. Quentin Tarantino's top inspiration. True. He founded it after a spiritual event where he claimed to have realized that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and Gautama Buddha uh, by reading someone's feet. Then finally, we have Stuart Walker, who was born in 1957. He's the leader of a group called The Pod in Mona Vale, Sydney, Australia. He also has claimed to be Tutankhamun and other deities. He also claimed to converse with whales, uh, but he was eventually imprisoned for drugs. <laughs> I want whatever drugs he was doing that made him talk to whales. I know. <laughs> you can just talk to whales. They don't have to talk back. Duh. True. Well, the problem is they talk back too much. I'm always like, how's it going, whales? And they're like, what's up, fatty? Whoa. (laughs) They're so mean. Now, in 1984, a rift happens between the group. At this point, David Koresh has been there for two or three years. And he claims that he will be Lois's successor because she didn't have enough faith to bring about that fake baby. 
And Lois doesn't fully disagree. She's not going to fight him. She's also almost 80 at that point. Her son, George, isn't having that shit. Thibodeau's account actually covers this extensively, including stories of Vernon being tested by George. There's one account that I found a couple different places where George allegedly dug up a dead body and then brought it to Vernon, David Koresh, and was like, bring it back to life. And according to the records, uh, Vernon was just like, how about instead of that, I call the cops. And so he just called the cops and was like, this fool's digging up dead bodies. That's <laughs> awesome. That's quite the dunk. Yeah. Uh, George Eleven allegedly even tried to assault him at one point, and he does end up doing prison time. So as a result, his faction of the group dissipates. And reportedly, he wasn't super well-liked to begin with, so it was a small group. But the rift was so aggressive that for a time, a portion of the group moved out to Palestine, Texas, or Palestine, if you're from there and don't pronounce it as Palestine. Uh, That was Koresh's group. They were living in Palestine because they were faithful to Koresh, and they basically were living out of buses and tents for about a year and a half. During this time, in 1985, uh, Vernon goes to Israel. It's at this point that he formally changes his name to David Koresh. David being after King David and then Koresh being a reference to Cyrus the Great, who is one of the basically kings that agreed to rebuild Israel. It's kind of, it's a little weird where he kind of makes it mean whatever he wants it to mean. Um, he says that Koresh means Messiah, but there's not necessarily any other basis for that. Um, but that's what he says. There is one other basis of it, and it's uh, the Koreshian unity, which is uh, a group run by a man named Cyrus Teed, who used Koresh because he thought that, you know, because the guy's name was Cyrus and he was like, oh, it's like my name, yep. but it means Messiah. So that's an earlier thing that happened in uh, the 30s, I believe. And I think that may have been where he got kind of some of the idea. Because when you look at like some of the other information around that word and history and Cyrus in history, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have like a one-to-one translation for Messiah. But yeah. that's what he's taken it to mean. They would have also been circulating in the same methods of, you know, those Christian newspapers. So if yeah. if he's reading those Christian newspapers, then he is almost more than likely going to run into one from the Koreshian unity, especially because yeah. there's a little bit of overlap here. Yeah. yeah, just a little bit. Now, while he's in Israel, he believes that he has had visions and believes that he, that God essentially shows him everything in accordance with God's law. And it's, again, very, very similar to an alien abduction story. He literally describes a chariot coming from heaven. He describes advanced civilizations past the constellation of Orion. Uh, He spends a lot of time talking about laser technology, which they had in the 80s. So, like, I don't know why he was like, you know, new information. Um, Unfortunately, it also peaked in the 80s and a lot of people are very sad about it. He believes that these visions gave him the ability to interpret the entire Bible accurately in a way that no one else can. Red flag. Uh, And he claims that these visions gave him a purpose and a destiny. He also claims that they cured his stutter. 
Now, remember, his stutter seemed to be stress-induced. So that is something that he may have developed coping mechanisms to eventually alleviate, but he claims that it is these visions. Upon returning to the group, he believed that he now had massive amounts of knowledge, and he's a pretty condescending dick about it, and it's not great. Great, David. You finally figured out reading, and now you're a jerk about it. Yeah, well, he's the guy who, like, goes to study abroad in a different country for three weeks and then comes back with an accent. He's that asshole. I thought you were talking about Israel, Texas. No. (laughs) No, no, no. Palestine, Texas's rival town across the way. (laughs) So later, he returns to Texas later that year, and he brings his group back to the compound at Mount Carmel, which is now deserted because George's group has dissipated. And in his absence, after only about two years, the compound had reportedly fallen into such disrepair that squatters were using it as a meth lab, a meth lab that (laughs) David Koresh immediately reported to the authorities. Um, This kind of marks a bit of a history of him being almost overly forthcoming with the local authorities. And I think it was as a way to kind of keep them, like keep a positive relationship with them so that they would leave them alone is kind of what I suspect. He was just a narc, but he was like a narc for the community is what he thought he was. Yeah. He's basically the next door app, but back then. (laughs) But back then. Oh my God. It's around this time that narratives shift. In Thibodeau's account, he actually jumps ahead and starts listing out things that happened in 1989 as if they happened in 1986, because this is what Koresh told him. I'll cover it more in depth later, but since Thibodeau doesn't even reach the compound until 88, this means either the timelines everyone else describes are completely wrong, or Thibodeau has his dates mixed up, and I suspect it's the latter. So... As they started to grow the compound and rebuild some of the structures on that compound, David Koresh decided he was going to get super into his band. So it started out with him preaching these long, very charismatic messages. And one of the former members actually remarked that he danced around so fast you were bewildered, which is cult 101. The faster I'm tap dancing and firing rapid fire scriptures at you, the less you see the holes in the doctrine that I'm giving you. So he still had trouble spelling. So he would just spell the names and words in the Bible the way he felt like spelling them and tell people that that was his divine inspiration for how it actually should be spelled. That's actually pretty genius. Yeah. It is, it is pretty genius. He's ad-libbing the Bible. Uh, that's not how you spell it in the me dictionary in my head. So here's something that he also does that is really troubling. Um, he shouts out scriptures and then says what the scripture allegedly says, and it's faster than you can look it up. Unless you're me and you paused his recordings of like actual sermons and looked up the scriptures he was claiming to quote so he's just giving sermons like an old-timey auctioneer like john three four six he'll just kind of start talking about concepts and then he'll be like psalms this this and this it says this 
And so by the time you've registered which verse he's allegedly telling you, he's said it says something and you don't even have time to look it up because he's on to the next thing. So I started actually going through his sermons and I would pause it and I would look up every single scripture that he referenced. At one point, this is the one that was the most glaring. He references Psalm 45 as a reference for revelation and the seals. But Psalm 45 is a wedding song. It's not in any way connected to Revelation, and it's definitely not the verse that he's supposedly reciting. Not if you ask comedians from the 80s. They know what I'm talking about. Oh, oh marriage is the end of my life. <laughs> in other cases, he's taking verses completely out of context. So he, at one point, yells out, like rapid fire, multiple Psalms. He's like, Psalms four, five, and six, learn them. You need to know them. And again, I looked them up and he's taking them completely out of context. Most of the Psalms he's referencing refer to specific historical event events, like things that we can corroborate with other historical records of the time. And in some cases, he's treating them like a metaphor. And I'm like, no, that actually happened. And in part, it's probably because they're written in poetry and song lyrics. The song of, you know, the book of Psalms is songs. And I think that's why it resonates with him so much as a musician that that's where he gravitates to. But he's literally just saying alleged scriptures and giving them a meaning that is not related to them at all. Um, he would also start to connect ideas and concepts that would kind of sound sensible, but it was largely his purpose and charisma that would win people over. Like he was so into it, he got other people into it, which is why in 1987, they all helped him produce an album. Now, if you watch Waco, Mad Men or Messiah, they play a lot of his music. And I'm here to tell you that it's not that bad. Uh, it's not quite right for the time. It's a little like Manson where it's like a little out of, like it's not quite the popular stuff quite, but it's kind of good. It's listenable. As long as he didn't have the same problems as Manson, which is the reason that every Manson recording sounds awful is because he thought that microphones look like penises. And so he didn't want to get close to them. Yeah, exactly. What? That's, that's why every Manson song sounds terrible. It's because he refused to get to the microphone. Which is like, weird. No, it looks like a dick. No. He, he definitely voluntarily sucked a dick or two. So yeah. I don't even know why, but anyway. But I never played any of them a song, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> now, essentially, it's kind of like hair metal ballads. So it's not, oh. yeah, it's not terrible. Uh, the young people in the group loved it because it was the closest they got to a rock concert ever. And they'd never seen shit like that before. Or they'd moved from a society where that kind of thing was the norm. And now we're on this compound where they didn't have TV or radio or anything. And so it was kind of a sense of normalcy. The way to be the most popular band is to be the only band. <laughs> that is accurate. <laughs> and David Koresh got super into it. So they made a ton of audio tapes that were basically his songs and some of his sermons all under the auspices of an actual band. They made band t-shirts, cassette tapes. Some of them still exist. And 
if I could compare it to a band today, I would I would compare it to like like I saw Warrant a couple years ago and they did a bunch of ballads. It's kind of like that. Now, those tapes actually reached pretty far because people would pass them to each other and people would be attracted to the music and then come to Mount Carmel. So as a result, they actually had a pretty heavy influx of people into the group and it was a very diverse group. You had people from every walk of life, every race, color, creed, socio-political, everything. It was a very, very diverse group. I think David Crush is also tapping into something really beautiful, uh, which is both people who believe in a specific religion and people who get really into a specific band like to say, which is, <laughs> but you haven't heard of this guy. <laughs> yeah. And as all of these people arrived from all over the world at Mount Carmel, they arrived to find a commune that was essentially nothing. There weren't many buildings that were still standing at the time, and they had to rebuild. We have our compound made out of tumbleweed. That's basically what it was. There's video of them just stacking, like, repurposed barn wood that's just, like, rotted and gross, and them tearing down the structures that were there. There were no toilets, minimal electricity, and only a few buildings left standing. And those few buildings were mainly used for concerts slash sermons. You guys be careful with that barn over there. That's our lead guitarist. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how we get the hit single, Peeing Outside for Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Now, David Koresh then directed the entire group to build the structure that everyone has seen in the footage of the siege. And you can kind of tell that it was homemade. It's an engineering nightmare. There are aerial views of it, and you can't make heads or tails of rooms connected to rooms connected to whatever. And most residents came to call it the hotel because everybody moved in. They started having communal meals. They maintained a healthy lifestyle, which... Define healthy. Well, this is a a case of... We didn't really cover it when we talked about the Seventh-day Adventists, but they're strictly vegetarian. Oh, okay. And so they maintained... The Branch Davidians were as well. That's pretty Um, dope. Yeah, no TV because they thought it would be a bad influence. So it is the devil. Their only real media was David Crush's band. Oh, no. <laughs> and he started to have longer and longer and longer Bible studies where that became the whole of what they did. And he started preaching a lot more about Revelation. His focus were on a section called the Seven Seals, which we covered a little bit in our Revelation episode. But as we covered, just a brief rundown if you didn't get a chance to listen to those, it's very possible that the repetition, it's very possible that the repetition of the number seven in the book of Revelation is related to Rome. Rome is the land of seven hills. And if you're taking Revelation literally, that's a bit of a problem since even the most conservative interpretations usually at least say that it is a metaphor and a prophecy. But David Koresh was taking it completely literally and he thought Babylon in Revelation referred to the United States and he started to believe that the Branch Davidians were going to be God's chosen people 
in the end times. And as we know from when we study Revelation, if you think you understand Revelation, you don't. But also, if you preach from the entire Bible and only focus on Revelation, that's a pretty big problem because it's the one book that we're not even sure is supposed to be there and it doesn't really fit. And it also is tons of allusions to earlier books, which is something that David Koresh didn't seem to understand at all. So he started to believe that he was the only one who could open the seven seals mentioned in Revelation. And at this point, he starts literally claiming to be Christ, the Son of God. And if he was truly the Son of God, there was only one thing left for him to do, and that was prepare for the end times. So he started to assemble a fucking army. Oh my God. Yeah. He told the entire group that they would suffer persecution and martyrdom and they would fall by fire. And he started preparing them to die. He would train them on obstacle courses and would train them with weapons. He impressed upon them that war was inevitable, kind of like um, Jonestown and revolutionary suicide, which is not something we've really covered yet. But it's this idea of if you reinforce a martyr narrative enough, it eventually becomes a common belief. So he was literally training children with assault rifles. And there is footage of children with assault rifles. That's not one of those things that's like, eh, it's a rumor. No, there's footage of it. There's a story from a girl who was a child in the compound who's now an adult. And... She said that one time David Koresh made her shoot her favorite baby doll for target practice. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jesus. He emphasized the idea that the government was definitely going to come and shoot them in their homes. And he would write songs for them to sing about how they would be soldiers and would have to die in battle. And there is also footage of that and footage of the children singing them. He strongly emphasized anti-government sentiment. And his Bible lessons went on for hours and hours, starting in the late afternoon, sometimes going all night. So a lot of these people were working their asses off because it's an active commune, which takes a lot of work, and they're sleep deprived or they're children. The same girl who he made her shoot her baby doll um, said that kids wouldn't be allowed to use the restroom during Bible study and would often pee their pants because they weren't allowed to leave. And Koresh would go on just these long, energetic tangents that seemed to just go on forever and ever and ever. And they would get increasingly intense and very screamy. And rumors begin to circulate around Waco proper that Koresh had a bit of an addiction to amphetamines. Some of the people that were closest to Koresh don't necessarily verify the amphetamines, but they did say that he had started to change and demanded that no one question anything he said. And he started to become obsessed with being the chosen one. Some of the people who lived there compared it to the Gestapo, where he would monitor their work for hours, their way they dressed, their media. Every part of their lives was controlled. There were armed guards at the front and the back of the meeting buildings, and you had to get permission from David to leave the property. Because if you're chosen by God, you can never be wrong. So they didn't question him. And the longer their life continued without an apocalypse, the less credibility he had. So he had to start to create Armageddon. And he would start 
by changing and destroying the lives of the people closest to him, his followers. Oh, no. And that's where we're going to leave off this week. It is important to note uh, that 1988, which is right around where we've ended, is right around the time that David Thibodeau gets to the compound. So he's coming into a group that has already been trained to prepare for death, essentially. And he's coming with nothing but his drumsticks. Yeah. And and something that we'll see kind of as we get further into the next episode is much like, um, kind of like Colonia Dignidad, but also Jonestown and even Manson, there are people within the group that know more than others. And there are people in the group that are sheltered so that they don't know things. And that's going to play a pretty big part in the next episode where even in listening to accounts from survivors, there are some that were hearing about buying and selling guns for the first time, even though they were there when it was happening. And I think David Thibodeau really represents kind of one of those where he doesn't cover a lot about the... Um, relationships with younger women, which we're going to cover extensively in the next episode, uh, or even the gun trafficking, gun trafficking. And I think in part, he was sheltered from a lot of that. I think there's also something to be said for the experiences of men within the group versus the way women survived this group. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in much more detail next week. Great job. Yeah. Thank you. I know this is kind of a a slog through everything, and I am sorry, but (laughs) it's a lot of information, and we could probably do 10 episodes on this, but everyone would get tired of it. Yeah, and then we'd have to pay, (laughs) we'd have to pay that guy from Friday Night Lights. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so yes, that's where we're stopping for this week. Well, that's good. I'm very excited for the next few episodes. Uh, Let's see, we got about two more of them left, right? So the next one is going to be their arms dealing as well as his relationships with the younger members of his flock. And then the one after that is the siege. And then a, I don't want to call it a bonus, but an additional episode that covers something else that is related that Armando is going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really excited. I love when we get to like, you know, throw back to each other. It's really fun. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Um... This episode is brought to you by um, Extensive Research. Hey, yeah. are you tired of having normal things to talk about? Are you tired of being awake during normal people hours? Have you tried Extensive Research? Uh, symptoms may include diarrhea, feeling like the government is going to get you, and the belief in aliens. And hair that will not lay down. And hair that will not lay down. Did you say you have diarrhea? Yeah, I have had some diarrhea. Um, I thought it was just eating so, so much cheese. But, you know. Also research. (laughs) I mean, what is eating a lot of cheese but extensive cheese research? This is true. Extensive cheese search. If you do anything enough, it's just research. Yeah. Um, Don't quote me on that. That can be used so badly. Anyway. um, I got my PhD in diarrhea, I think. Uh, (laughs) That's what the D in PhD stands for. Oh, no. Pretty heavy diarrhea. Diarrhea. (laughs) 
Congrats to all you new doctors out there. Uh, we're really proud of you, uh, even though you didn't get a walking ceremony, and this is how we're showing it. PhD Central Pretty Heavy Diarrhea is the best thing. I'm just going to start using that right now. Uh, don't go in the bathroom. I just got my PhD. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. I just got my Asosa shits. I don't know if that's good enough, but... (laughs) Anyway, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful scholarly Patreon donors. This episode is brought to you uh, in part by at not Marley. They just put their Instagram (laughs) handle. That's a pretty good idea. Well, we know who they're not. Yeah. That's yeah, it's fair. It's N O T M A R L E E. So it's it's not Marley, but it's not Bob Marley. So it could ironically be Marley with a Y, but it's not mm. Marley with two E's. But it could be Marley the ghost from Christmas Carol. Ooh, it could be. It could also be the worst disguised name of all time where they're like, What's your name? Uh 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 not Marley. It's <laughs> pretty good. Definitely don't click on the folder on my computer that says not porn. <laughs> <laughs> it's just pictures of Marley and me. The movie. I don't understand it. Is this a dog that has used a computer to talk to us and is trying to fool us? Like I'm definitely not the dog from Marley and me. That Damn. dog is dead. <laughs> Spoiler alert yeah. for Marley and Me, first well, of all. Well, damn it, now I can't watch Marley and Me. <laughs> well, that movie also came out so long ago that there's no way that dog is still alive. It only came out 35 dog years ago, Andrea. <laughs> well. Try not to be such a dick about it. Um, but how many God years is that? <laughs> I think it's like 35,000 years. I don't remember the math. So for God, it happened a while ago. <laughs> Uh, not Marley at not Marley. Um, thank you so much for your support. I'm going to change my Instagram name to at yes, Armando Torres. (laughs) It is. You got it. It's me. Armando Torres. You're probably wondering how I got here. And that's my whole (laughs) username on Instagram. It just like your first Instagram post is just a freeze of you like taking a cake to the face. You're like, Hey, you're probably wondering how this happened. Let me tell you. That's my whole Instagram identity. Um, thank you at not Marley. You're the best uh, and you're part of the best. You can go to patreon.com slash cult podcast to see all of our other tiers for just $5. You get access to our bonus show, the speculation zone, and you get us making fun of your, your name or whatever you tell us to say. Yeah. Um. Great. Awesome. If you want to send me a pretty heavy diarrhea degree like a, <laughs> no a ph, a ph diarrhea but like an actual you know like a framed document a shit ploma a if shit you will. ploma yes oh my god so great um you can send that did you have to give a dish shit or taste <laughs> this is where we've gone this is comedy <laughs> What was I saying? Oh, yeah. If you want to send me a degree for my P- uh, PhD, a.k.a. Pretty Heavy Diarrhea, you can send that to me on Instagram and Twitter at Mondo Does Stuff or um, also at Record Scratch. Yep, that's me, Armando Torres. You're probably wondering how I got into this situation. <laughs> Interior, Armando's car, 
three weeks Armando's earlier. Armando's been writing scripts. If you're wondering how we got here, that's why. <laughs> this is just the teaser. It shows you that there's more to come. Anyway, I love you so much. Bye. <laughs> hey, if you want to send me your favorite underground Christian rock song, uh... If you're a fan of Skillet and you want to talk about how that was the first concert you went to as well. No one's a fan of Skillet. We had no other options, Paige. It was the Lord's music. existed. What is Skillet? Oh, they look so bad. They look, all of them look like magicians from different parts of the world. (laughs) If you want to send me the cringy Christian music you were into as a child because your parents wouldn't let you listen to regular radio... Please send that to me on all the things at Sundress Comic or check out my artwork on Instagram. I've been posting uh, art I made out of toilet paper and also cute unicorns and shit. So check that out. I have no shit degrees. I'm sorry. I I, uh, I like how you were making fun of our PhDs when you've been making toilet paper art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And listening to Skillet. This apparently. is art. Okay, people. Uh, if you want to send me your PhD dissertation, uh, please tell me about the worst shit you've ever taken. And you can send that to me at Paige Wesley on Twitter or at Rampage Wesley on Instagram. The PhDs are something that we should be giving out, both real ones and this joke one. But we, if you want to <laughs> apply for one, we'll decide if you qualify, if you get into our school and get a PhD, a pretty heavy diarrhea. Yeah, if you can get into Armando's school of blitzcraft and wizardry. And weedery. Oh, I'm so sorry. Of blitzcraft and weedery, you two could maybe come away with a PhD in research, quote unquote. Hey, guys, you can't <laughs> say wizardry anymore. We got a lawsuit from Hogwarts, and Dumbledore's a real dick about it. Uh, it's Dumblesnore because we can't say that word because we don't have the licensing. So. That's fair. Armando, before the pandemic started, Armando did take me to a Harry Potter themed escape room, but they were not licensed. And so all the names were like off brand Harry Potter names. And it was fantastic. Where is this? Can I go? That's even better than a licensed one. It it was so much funnier. It's in Monterey Park. It's the shit. I never want to go to an escape room ever again after this pandemic. But in 12 years, I'll go back. Hell yeah, dude. (laughs) If you like our show and you want to apply for your PhD, you can follow us on Instagram at Colt Podcast. Or on Twitter at Colt Podcast Show. You can also send us an email to ColtPodcastShow at gmail.com. Or if you need to send us um, written theses about your dissertation. Did you, you say, say written feces? feces? Did you say feces? I said feces, but it should have been feces. <laughs> Don't Gross. send us shit with writing. Please on don't it. actually send us shit unless you use your shit to craft a beautiful poem or something. In which no, case good. that becomes art. No, I'm I'm back on um, it. Two against one. <laughs> send us your shit. Maria Abramovich. <laughs> I can't pronounce her name. Abrama shit, please. Yeah, no, sorry. It's, it's it's Abramovic, but okay. Maria Abramovic has some Maria, amazing I'm about to shit. artwork using her vagina blood, and I'm just saying that we could make that work for poop. And create museum quality artwork. And if you want to do that and send it to us, I'm here for it. Just dry it out first. We did talk about Maria Abramovic on our Satanism episode, like way back in the day. Speaking of museum quality art, just know that any art can be museum quality art if you hang it up in a museum. It's called a reversed (laughs) art heist. You put your own art up and you fight off anyone who tries to take it down. I'm pretty sure Banksy did that. 
Yeah, well, I put up a finger painting in the Louvre and no one could stop me for 30 minutes, so I'm an artist <laughs> now. That's also an episode of Always Sunny. Damn it. Uh, but what I am going to say is maybe during a pandemic, we shouldn't handle people's body fluids. Oh, yeah. You're making great points. Even if they are art. I'm listening. Uh, how about this? If you need to send us representations of poop out of made out of anything that is not poop like clay mm, or yeah. paper mache mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or foods you could send that to 3756 west avenue 40 sweet k number 237 like, like the, the shitting <laughs> los angeles california 90065 90 shit five yeah now you're getting it. I can't believe people listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe it. Why are you here? Um, I'm going to say don't drink prune juice. It'll just make it worse. And don't drink the Kool-Aid. Bye. Bye.